Well, it's, uh, it's great to see you, Providence. Hope you've had a great week, and it's always a privilege to worship with you. If you brought with you a Bible, if you want to turn with me to John chapter 7, verse 53, we're going to go up to chapter 8, verse 11. And uh, if you did not bring one, there should be one in a chair in front of you. If you don't have one at home, we'd love for you to take that home with you. But if you're a guest here at Providence, uh, we are glad that you're here, uh, thrilled that you um, chose to come uh, today. Um, and if you're uh, in the amphitheater or at home on live stream, I uh, also want to just say uh, hello as well. And so um, uh, it is uh, really good to see you. We're in a series through John, obviously, and um, we're up to chapter 7. The whole book is written uh, to help us to believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing that we would have life in his name. And so um, this, is a, this is a fascinating passage, in particular what is surrounding it, which is where we're going to spend most of our time here and, um, and, uh, and the nature of this is one that always leads me to want to plead with the Lord first. And so if you would, would you bow with me? Father in heaven, as we prepare to read what you've, um, uh, Lord, your, your word, what you've placed uh, here before us, we, we pray, Father, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us to believe. We thank you, Father, one day, Lord, your word tells us that we're going to see you face to face, but we also thank you that even though we can't do that yet physically, you have allowed us to have a Bible, which really is a window into these glories that we can see. And so we thank you, Father. And I pray that you would help us to see the glory of Christ this morning as we look at this passage. Would you please help? Would you give us wisdom and understanding? Help us to believe and to apply. And would you speak through weakness for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting in verse 53, this is what it says. It says, and they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one. It says that it began with the older ones and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Well, a few years ago, uh, I uh, had the opportunity and said yes to the opportunity to watch a little documentary. It's called Food, Inc. Um, Some of you may have seen this. Um, This is not a film that I would encourage you to, uh, to watch either before or after a meal, but um, but what Food Inc. does is it's a true story. It sort of uh, traces the production of food from the farm uh, to the supermarket to your plate. And, 
And um, what I learned, uh, what you learn there uh, is, is, um, is very, very clear. And that is that taste is not the only variable um, that we should be concerned about when it comes to food. <laughs> that how the food got there also matters. And when it comes to nutrition, the process of development is as important as the product. How the food gets to your plate is as important as how nutritious and tasty the food is. And what I hope to do this morning is to show you that this is also true with the Bible. That the process by which that book in your lap came into being is as important to what is in your lap, the product itself. I got to tell you right now that the text is unique and therefore the sermon is very unique. Uh, I, I may not do this for another decade, what I'm going to do today. Okay? And it's because the text asks for it. It calls for it. But there's not many pl- texts like this. Most weeks, you know that I stand up and I read a passage and I try to explain what it says in ways that we can understand and apply to our life. This text is different. What you see here is in most of our Bibles, our text is placed inside double brackets And then there's a note that precedes the text that says that the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, to chapter 8, verse 11. Now, just so we're all working on the same page, I took an actual picture of my Bible so that you could see what I'm looking at, so you know exactly what I'm talking about, okay? That which you see on that page that is red is not really on my Bible, it's just on the screen. But you see the actual text from chapter 7, verse 53, which is really hard to read. It's by that big eight all the way to the end of that section. And then you see a red circle there. There's two double brackets. And there's a good chance that your Bible has those brackets as well. And then preceding it, there's that red box. Okay, And inside that red box, it says that the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. In your Bible, it may look like this. It may be that in your Bible, that's in a margin. And then in some of your Bibles, they kind of take out everything to where they only have the text and you may not even see it there at all. But, but all modern Bibles, if you went and you bought a Bible today, it's going to have some reference to what I'm just saying. Now, some of you are going, okay, where, where are you going with this? Okay. What you need to know about this is that this is not the insertion by opponents who are seeking to to like sow seeds of doubt in your understanding and your belief in the Bible. This was actually an insertion that represents the remarkable integrity of Scripture's preservation and was added by people, believers, who not only believe the Bible, but also believe the Bible to be God's infallible and inerrant word. And it was added for a reason, though. There, are, there is actual evidence that I want to show you that is rare to nearly everything that you see throughout the New Testament, but you see in this passage, which is why it's marked as it is, that leads some that at least suggest that this section may not have been part of John's original writing, meaning what John himself wrote. And so I want to show you this There's four pieces of evidence. The first is that 14 of these words in this section, right, are unique to the vocabulary used throughout the rest of John. Now, you say, okay, you know, what does that mean? What it means is this. Let's just say that you received the letter in the mail, and at the bottom of it, it said, 
in Christ, Brian Frost, which is how I normally end my letters to you. And in that letter, I keep referring to you as pal. You might go, you know what? He never talks like that, right? He uses the, use, uses the word friend. Like there's words that, that, that you can use this one or this one. And most of us, we kind of go one versus the other. And so when people look at this and they go, man, 14 words, he uses a synonym of that word almost every other time when he uses it and everything that he writes in the New Testament. So some people look at that and goes, well, either he was on a real creative streak for 13 verses, or maybe he wasn't the one to first pen those words. The second piece would be that the section is not found in any known manuscript of John before the 5th century. Now, what does that mean? It means that when you look at all the manuscripts that we have currently today of the book of John, as far back as we can go, before the 5th century, this passage is not included in any of them. The third piece of information would be, among the manuscripts where it's included after the 5th century, this section that we just read is included, but it's placed in five different places. Um, in some of them, it's, in, it's right after John chapter 7, verse 36. In a few of them, it's right after John chapter 7, verse 44. Most of them is where we have it right now. A few of them have it at the end of John, meaning they write all of John and all of a sudden it's just kind of like stapled to the back of it. And then there's actually a couple manuscripts that put it in Luke, which is interesting. The last piece of information would be this, is that when you look back at all of the early church fathers, what I'm talking about there is like all the pastors in the first, second, third century, all the theologians that are writing about, about this, before the fourth century, we don't find any sermons or commentary about this section of John. What does that mean? What it means is this, that like in a hundred years, if folks came and they looked at this series that we're doing and and it's a verse by verse all the way through John. Well, we look back at all the pastors and all the recordings and all the commentaries and all the sermons of people that sought to teach through John. And before the fourth century, nobody included this passage. And so some of you are going now, wait a minute, right? Some of you are just like me when I was in seminary. And every time someone questioned or came close to even the appearance of questioning the integrity of the Bible, I got real defensive. Some of you are going, wait, you've been here one year and you're all, all, already you're getting rid of the Bible. No, 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 I'm not doing that, okay? Let me just reaffirm something very, very clearly, okay? I believe the Bible, consisting of the 66 books of the Old Testament and New Testament, to be the infallible word of God, inspired by God and without error in the original manuscripts, okay? I believe that. And I would die for that today. That's certain. Now, since we claim here at Providence to believe that the Bible is infallible, and since critics, not only in our country, but even in our own community, right down the, the road in Chapel Hill and various other places, use this specific text to dispute the credibility of the entire New Testament and therefore the Bible. What I want to do today is something a little different. I want to take off my preacher hat, and I want to put on my teacher hat, and I want to talk about the process of how the Bible made it onto our plate for dinner, and then show you how we can be nourished by the food that's served up in this amazing story. 
because of the complexity and the intentionality, I'm going to have to read a lot of it because there's a lot of information. Um, because it is a little bit more heady than normal, the complete manuscript of my notes has been made available and copied. It's that next step. So after we're done, if you want to read it, if that would be helpful, it's there for you. So how did we get the Bible? It really is a miracle. In fact, I believe to hold a Bible is to hold a miracle. Most of us have read some of the miracles, and I've often wondered, what did the miracle food feel like? What did the miracle drink taste like? And what you need to know is this, is that if you are holding a Bible in your hand, you are holding a miracle book. It's a miracle. It's more miraculous than had somebody found it in this state under a rock. And this is why I say that. The Bible contains 66 separate books 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. So let me pause there just for a second. The word testament means covenant. Covenant is also a word for promise. In other words, in the Old Testament before Christ, God made promises, had a covenant with the nation of Israel. And what we see in the Old Testament, those 39 books, is his working with them. Jesus Christ comes and then all of a sudden there's a new covenant and therefore a new testament. And there's 27 books in the new. So the Bible contains 66 separate books originally written in three different languages, mostly Hebrew and Greek, over a period of more than 1,500 years by more than 40 people of varying backgrounds. It's written by kings and peasants and priests and doctors and fishermen and scholars. It's written on three separate continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And these 40 people from different backgrounds, speaking different languages on different continents, do not know each other. And yet they tell one coherent story of redemption that fits together like a perfect puzzle. It's a miracle. So how did God do this? I want to show you three ways, not ways, three things he did. Okay. Number one is, or A, is God inspired people to write. He inspired people to write. If you go to the seminary, they're going to call this revelation. Okay? Revelation. God revealed himself to people and inspired them to write what they saw and what they heard. John does this exact same thing. In 1 John chapter, um, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. So John, who's been camping with Jesus for three years, his disciple, he's seeing everything. He's hearing everything. Jesus goes back to heaven and he wants to write another letter to people saying, this is what I saw. This is what I heard. But you need to understand this, that instead of writing what they wanted, God inspired them to write what he wanted. And this is what we find in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. That no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it is absolutely astounding if you consider this for a second, that you have some brothers that God is speaking to them a prophecy. There's Old Testament prophets saying one day this is going to happen. They don't see it happen, but they hear God say it, so they write it down. Literally a continent, a continent away Centuries later, another brother, God, shows them the fulfillment of that. He writes it down, and it is the direct fulfillment of what someone else who they've never met said would take place. 
He says, no prophecy has ever come about by the will of man, but the Holy Spirit carried is what it said. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Like, I mean, that's like as, 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 as tender of a word as you can choose to say that God led you to say, you don't want to use that word. You want to use this word. And this is what he did. The Holy Spirit carried each biblical writer within the context of his own style, his own personality, his own vocabulary. And so when you read it, farmers like Amos, they sound like a farmer. Paul, who's a, who's a lawyer, he sounds like a lawyer. And this is why Paul can tell us that all scriptures God breathed because God carried these writers in the context of their own style to select the very words that God wanted them to say. And what's remarkable is part of God's revelation is the Holy Spirit also serves as the internal witness within his people to confirm what is scripture and what is not scripture. First John chapter five, verse six says, the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is truth. In other words, among God's people, when God's spirit opens up people's eyes to be able to see the greatness of Jesus Christ and trust in him, that same spirit who lives within us confirms within us as an internal witness, this is true and that's not true. And why he's uniquely capable of doing so is because he is truth. He is, he is the author of truth. So the Holy Spirit led his people in the Old Testament to recognize not only the happenings, but the writings of Moses and David, a few priests, Joshua, and a bunch of prophets to be divinely inspired. They looked at this and said, this is, this is so unique. And God's Spirit put upon, this is true. And this is authoritative. And all of a sudden what they did was they organized it into three different sections. So the Old Testament, which is the exact same content, different order just slightly, but the same content as the Jewish Bible today and has been for centuries, is in the law, the writings, and the prophets. Now this is what's amazing. When Jesus Christ comes to the earth, everyone believed that the canon of Scripture was complete. The word canon means measuring rod. What's in, what's out. Right? What writings are scripture? What writings are not scripture? And everyone believed that it was complete. And in fact, Jesus himself confessed in Luke chapter 24 that this is the bounds. So the law, the prophets, and the writings literally are the boundaries of scripture. And the reason that he says that, he goes, look. In Luke 24, he goes, in showing from the scriptures and the law, the prophets, and the writings, everything that's said about him. And isn't it amazing how even Jesus and the New Testament writers, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament 295 times and never once is the origin or the authority ever disputed. Jesus, right? He, like, he, here's the son of God. And the two times that was the most tense environment he's ever known, right? The temptation of Jesus and the cross of Jesus. Do you know what he's doing? He's quoting scripture. He's pulling his own heart and he's saying, this is what's been written. And so there's tremendous credibility. So what led to the New Testament? Well, what led to the New Testament was the Son of God came to earth. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as, the, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what Hebrews 1.1 says. 
He goes, in the past, God spoke through a variety of ways through prophets, but in the last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So after Jesus lived and then he died and he was buried and he rose from the dead, Jesus entrusted authority to his apostles and the church was built upon their teaching. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 says it this way. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What does that mean? What it means is that for these apostles, what they wrote became scripture. Matthew, John, Peter, and Paul, literally what they penned on paper became the New Testament. But not only from them, but also their assistants. And so Mark and Luke and James and Jude, who spent a lot of time as personal assistants to the apostles, what they wrote also became the canon of the New Testament. And so 66 books, all inspired by one God. The second thing that God did was God preserved the scripture. He preserved the scripture. And what this means at the seminary, the word they use is the word transmission. So if you're ever reading something and it says the transmission of scripture, what they're talking about is how did, how did it keep? How do you have a copy of what John wrote? That's, that's what that means. Was it transmitted all the way down to you? This is remarkable that God stirred the heart of his people to reproduce the originals. People wanted to read it and there was only one copy. And so they said, we need a photocopy machine, but that wasn't invented until 1440. And so we have 1500 years where we need copies all over the world and there's no copy machines. What do they do? They did it by hand. Scribes would meticulously copy by hand exactly what was written. And today you need to know if you go to school, a college, and they want to dissuade you from believing the Bible, this would be one of the things that they say. And so you need to know, and it's actually true. We do not have a single original copy of any one of the 66 books. They're not in some library somewhere. We don't have them. We do not have the, the papyrus that was written by Moses. This is what it said. We, we don't have that. What we have is a collection but it's so abundant of copied manuscripts through the centuries. And when you think about the validity of what we're talking about here, it's emphasized when you compare the number of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament and the Old Testament against other recognized ancient works of the same time period. So let me give you a few examples, okay? There's three of them right here on the board. Caesar wrote Gallic Wars. It was composed somewhere around 50 BC. And today, we do not have any original of this book, but we do have 10 existing manuscripts. What's interesting is these manuscripts, um, most of them are literally five, six, seven hundred years later, and yet nobody doubts the validity of those books. Some of it is because those books don't claim to be God, but... That's a different story, right? Livy, he wrote Roman history. And then the the histories and annals, these two books, there's 20 known manuscripts of Roman history and only two of histories and annals. 
These were both composed and written somewhere around the time of Jesus and anything that we study today about Roman history. So if you're in eighth grade and if you studied anything about Roman culture and history, we got that information from these books. They're not disputed whatsoever. And there's only two manuscripts. Both of them are over a thousand years old. Not the original manuscript, a thousand year old manuscript. And nobody disputes it. Now, when you compare this against the New Testament, and this is what you see. What you see is today we have 5,801 ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament with an additional 15,000 manuscripts in other languages. Now, what this means is that no other ancient book comes close to this kind of wealth of preservation. And what's remarkable is the earliest. We actually have 18 complete New Testament copies that are within a hundred years of John writing. A hundred. It's a remarkable preservation that we have. And I believe that God is the one who is doing this. But what's amazing is even if you look at some of the other things that we have that are not complete manuscripts, it is a remarkable preservation. Let me give you one example of this, okay? The scripture was quoted in the writings and sermons of the early church. What I'm talking about here is like from 80... 95 to 80, 50. So about 30 to 35 years after John wrote. And their quoting of these New Testament passages is so extensive that with the exception of 11 verses, the entire New Testament can be constructed from quotations alone. What does that mean? It means this. If you took my notes, let's just say the people were here 200 years from now and they came back and they go, look at these notes. And all of these red, red, all this red ink, these are direct quotes from other places than the passage that I'm reading from. And if you took all of these and then you went to all the other pastors throughout the whole country and they're preaching. And if you just took those and you pulled them all together, you would reconstruct. This is what he's saying is in that period of time, you can reconstruct the entire New Testament outside of 11 verses from 2nd and 3rd John. It's a remarkable preservation. I believe Jeremiah one twelve is exactly what's happening when God says, I am watching over my word to perform it. He's watching over his word. Okay. Now, what about this story and why is that in there? Well, the wealth of preservation creates both problems and solutions. And we find that in our text even this morning. Now, I need you to lean in right now and not away, okay? This is the time to pay close attention. You see, the more handwritten copies that we have, the more variants we find. What I mean by that is this. Let's just say right now, I just say, you know, I'm going to quit preaching. I'm going to put this page back up, and I want everyone just to copy it. I want you to be really, really careful. I just want you to copy it down. And I want you to leave it on your chair. And next week, when we come back, the first service, I'm going to ask them to copy your copy. And then the second service is going to copy their copy of your copy. And this is what's happening. People are copying, right? And so today you can go over to lots of schools. I'm not going to name any of them. And they'll say, you know what? The Bible's full of errors. What do they mean by that? And this is what they mean by that. When you have 5,801 original Greek manuscripts, ancient Greek manuscripts, and they're copies of copies, Let's just say your O really looks like an A. So the next person looks at it and go, you know what? I think it's this. And so what you find is the errors that people say exist within the New Testament or the Bible at large. 
What they're talking about is the, 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 the scribal errors of copying, not the original. That's why at the very beginning I said that they're inerrant in terms of the original manuscripts. And so what, you, what, what it means is this. Let's just say that there's only two known copies of the book of John, and one includes the story and one doesn't. That make it very hard to know if we should read this story, doesn't it? But if you have 5,800 and there's 10 that don't and all the rest that do, then all of a sudden you're able to trace back a little closer to the original in particular because we actually have knowledge of which one was a copy of which one. And so when one got off, you can see the variants that take place. So let me conclude this little section with just a few thoughts, okay? Number one, I want to encourage you to keep in mind that the vast majority of any of the variants, and when we call it variant, what we're talking about is a textual, a scribal error. They're all elements like spelling or when you accidentally add a word, meaning, wait a minute, add a word, meaning you, start, you actually are writing it and, and in the beginning. And you start writing in, and you look over the, and you look back over, and you forget that you wrote the, and so you write another the. So now your copy says, in the, the beginning. That's the kind of error that people say today is in the New Testament. That, that it's full of errors. But when you have all of those copies, you can actually get all the way back to where you go, you know what? The second thing, about 80, 98 to 99% of the original, meaning the original manuscript, can be reconstructed today beyond any reasonable doubt. And there's not one single Christian doctrine that's built on any disputed passage, sentence, or word. What does that mean? It means even in a passage like this where we're uncertain, it's not like the passage says that Jesus is not the Son of God. Right? There's, there's, there's some resemblance to a character in Jesus that we see outside of this passage as well. But, and the third thing, to be totally above reproach, every single textual variant is marked in our modern translations either by adding brackets or by placing a note in the margins. And so, while our passage in John this morning is disputed, please do not conclude that everything is up for grabs. Because we really do believe that what you're reading was written by John. The third thing that God did to place a Bible in your lap is God moves to spread the scripture. We call this translation. See, the same God who inspired the writing of the Bible wants people to read it in their own language. And so God put it on the heart of people to translate in their languages. And the very first person was Jerome. He translated it into Latin. And a thousand years later, someone says, you know, there's a lot of people in this world that speak English. We should translate it into English. So John Wycliffe, he began to translate the Bible into English, and the Pope declared him a heretic and had his translation burned in 1407. You say, why would he do that? Because if everyone can read, then there's accountability for the priest and preacher. And so he was declared a heretic. So John Huss, he took up the baton, And sought to finish Wycliffe's translation until he was martyred in 1415 for being a heretic. To dissuade any others, the Pope had Wycliffe's bones dug up and burned. Well, years later, a guy named William Tyndall, he rose up 
And he had to start from scratch. And he translated the Bible with a bounty on his head. What does that mean? It means the only way that you have right now a copy of an English Bible is because this man chose to run and write because people wanted to kill him. And the only reason they wanted to kill him is because he wanted you to be able to read in English. It's a miracle. You see, see, men and women inspired by God's love died to get the Bible in our lap. What's amazing is the Bible still needs to be translated. There's roughly 2,000 people groups who do not have a copy of the Bible in their language. So let me speak to us as a congregation. Maybe some of you who have a job, maybe some of you who need a job. Some of you maybe who are college students, some of you who are retiring. I want to encourage you to pray, God, would you be calling me to a life that would perhaps translate the scripture into somebody's language that they would be able to read this amazing message of God's love for all of us. See, we can connect you with programs and organizations to help you to study, help you move to live among an unreached people group to learn their language so that you can help translate just like these men did for us. It would be hard and it could be dangerous, but God would be with you. So what I hope you see is that the process by which scripture comes to our plate is as nutritious as the meal itself. So what is the meal? What do we do with this text? Well, while there is doubt that John originally wrote it, nobody, in particular in the early church, doubted this to be an actual historical occurrence in the life of Jesus. There's, there's affirmation, that's why it finds itself there. It was written down and probably later added at the back of one of the manuscripts of John because it had become recognized as a true story of what took place. Now, what we can learn from it today, we can learn to the extent that it parallels so much of what we know about Jesus from the rest of the New Testament that's not disputed in any way. This story is literally a living parable of the Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah. That a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. In other words, in Jesus we find compassion so abundant that bruised people with flickering souls will not be broken or extinguished. And so what happens? Well, Jesus is at the temple. He's teaching and the Pharisees bring a woman who's been caught in adultery. And it says that he did this in order to test Jesus. They point to the Old Testament that says if a man is found lying with a wife of, um, that's not their own, that they both must die. Well, you need to understand this. Jewish law demanded not only that there would be two eyewitnesses, but they had to be caught in the act. Meaning not conjecture or not just a compromising place but they literally had to be caught committing adultery. Both of them need two people. And so Jesus is not asked about guilt. He's asked about the penalty, which was a perfect trap to see if Jesus would contradict the law in order to exercise compassion. So what does Jesus do? He does two things. The first thing he does is he disturbs the comfortable, and then he comforts the disturbed. So he disturbs the comfortable. What does that mean? Well, after writing something unknown in the dirt, 
A lot of people say, what did you write in the dirt? Nobody knows. I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. If you say, oh, I read somebody and said this. They don't know either. Okay? They don't know. We don't know. We don't know what he wrote. The only reason it's there is because someone saw it happen and they said that should be written down. And they wrote it down. So he's writing in the dirt. And, uh, and, and all of a sudden, he, he, he just stands up and he says, okay, look, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, you need to know this is not the basis for social justice because no criminal will be brought to justice if judges had to be totally sinless. What Jesus is doing here is he is forcing them to own their own guilt by highlighting their illegal entrapment. You see, adultery needs two people. Both had to be caught if one was caught. Both had to be brought if one was brought. And so it's as if Jesus was saying, look, the very law that you invoke here, you're breaking. You won't name your own sin, so I'm going to name your sin for you. And if I'm wrong about this, then throw a rock. And all of a sudden, rocks start dropping to the ground and people start walking away. There's no one there except the two. And he says, does no one condemn you? She says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. You see, Jesus does not condemn her. Instead, he gives her mercy, listen, by putting her sin on a tab that he would pay for on a cross six months from now. So what can we take away from this story? A few things for your week. Letter A, when you are bruised, run to Jesus. He's such a safe place for the disturbed and the bruised. You say, how can a just God give mercy to the guilty? Because that just God died for the guilty and then chose to give his righteousness to the guilty. See, this is exactly what he did for us. He what he said to her, he says to us. Romans 12, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've trusted in Jesus, not only has he taken away your sin, but he's given you his righteousness. You're not condemned anymore. The second thing is that when you are forgiven, run from your sin. So when you're bruised in your sin, you run to Jesus. When you're forgiven of your sin by Jesus, you need to run from your sin. See, Jesus really does demand life change. For those who believe. That's why he says, leave your sin. However, the order is critical. Jesus does not say, go and sin no more, and then I will not condemn you. This is the deadly and empty equation of all religion that says, go fix yourself and clean yourself up and then come back later and I'll see what I do with you. No, what he says is, I condemn you, now go and sin no more. In other words, all life change in Christianity occurs after grace, not before grace. Jesus is saying, look, the sin in your life, it's not condemning you because you've been forgiven and justified. But now it's coming between our right relationship with one another. So he's saying, why would you choose to defile the heart that I died to cleanse? Walk with me down a better path. See, you take your sin to the law and you become a legalist. You you take your sin to the cross and you become a Christian. They're very, very different. The third thing is this. When you need to see Jesus, run to his word. You see, when you're bruised, you run to Jesus. When you're forgiven, 
you run from your sin. And when you really need to see Jesus, you run to his word. You see, Providence, God needs me or anyone else to defend the Bible about as much as he needs me or anyone else to defend the Son. Faith is not a heroic step on a foundation without evidence. But I want you to know that no matter how much evidence I or someone else can give you as to the reliability and credibility of the scriptures and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, no man can believe these things without God's help. Jesus said when he was on the earth in John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus says, the light is coming to the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. What does this mean? It means that before Jesus Christ, you and I, we were not chained to a dark prison cell, longing to look through a window to see the sunshine outside. The Bible says we loved the dark prison cell and were content with the drawings that had been etched on the wall by previous prisoners. This is what Paul tells us in Romans. Romans 1.23 says, we exchanged the glory of God for images. Before Christ, we were content with rock on rock drawings in prison cells as opposed to seeing light. We love the darkness. And so for us to even believe or see this evidence, God must open up our eyes. And this is exactly what he does. Second Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What does it mean? It means the same God that took light and made it some, uh, that invented light when there was no such thing as light. This same God has to take that same power to come into our dark prison of a heart and say, let there be light. I can't convince you of these things. He has to. And so I urge you to pray that God would help you to believe. If you know family members or friends that do not believe, I urge you to pray for them. In Providence, I urge us as a body of people to read the Bible with a lookout for God. You see, the reason that I have chosen to stand before the window of Scripture for 26 years now is not to protect it from people that are trying to throw rocks through it. I've stood before the window of scripture for 26 years now because that window is the only window on this earth that helps me see Jesus. And so if you need to see Jesus, you need to run to his word. We are Bible people at Providence and we are Bible people because even more so we are Jesus people. And this book helps us see him. So keep reading it. Keep loving it. Keep enjoying it. It's the word of God given for us. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you and thank you for your kindness and your mercy that's been expressed to us most importantly through Jesus, but also through the pages of scripture that you've given to us and preserved, translated into languages that we can read. We thank you, God, for the gift of the Bible and pray that you would speak through the Bible, to each of our hearts. I pray for those, even in this room, that may be doubting the credibility of the Bible or may be going to schools in a few years that will be tempted to do so, that will be urged to doubt. I pray, God, that you would use things like this to fortify 
our certainty and our assurance that what we read when we open up this book is from you. We also thank you for the wonderful gift of the story that teaches us that not only do you comfort us, but you're a safe place for us who are sinners. And pray, Father, for those that are beat down in sin today, that you would help them to turn their face and look to you. So God, as we, Lord, uh, have an offering, as we sing a song, and as we take a minute even to think about these things, God, would you remind us maybe one or two things that you've said this morning and help that to anchor down deep in our heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.